This is Archive Atlanta, episode 113, Love, Law, and Liberation Movement. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. Goes without saying that Atlanta history is black history, and there are a few episodes I have that don't touch on it. But I still didn't want Black History Month to pass without sharing the story of how Atlanta desegregated its bus system. In the grand scheme of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, the love, law, and liberation movement can seem like a local blip on the history radar. I had read about it a little bit when I was researching Reverend Borders, but I didn't really know any of the details. And when I read those details, I definitely knew it was a story I wanted to share on the podcast. Let's start with a little background on what was going on in the world of civil rights battles in Atlanta right before this event. In 1950, the NAACP had filed suit unsuccessfully against the city's Board of Education to desegregate schools. It wouldn't be until four years later that Brown v. Board of Education happened. But if you listen to the public schools episode, you know that schools here did not desegregate until 1961. And this is something I want to point out that is really the central point of this episode, because a lot of people process history as a series of bullet point events like, okay, 1865, civil war's over, enslaved people are free, check. But we have Juneteenth because that wasn't true. And then we had convict leasing, so was it ever true? And what I'm getting at is that just because something is deemed illegal or unconstitutional, even on a federal level, does not mean that the lives of everyone across the country instantly changed at that moment. Typically, that change required organization and pushback from the very people who were being oppressed. And not everything was accomplished with sweeping radical action. The older guard of Atlanta, the John Wesley Dobbses, the Daddy Kings, the C.A. Scots, they were extremely conservative and they fought for equality in conservative ways that often get left out of conversation because we don't like to have nuanced conversations. In 1955, the Georgia Supreme Court forced integration and then also desegregated golf courses. And Mayor Hartsfield supports the golf course desegregation, but he closes the showers in the facilities to avoid confrontation. The same year, the Montgomery bus boycott began. And so if you know your bus boycott details, it started December 5th, 1955, and it ended with the civil suit going to federal district court. And then after that, appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court held the lower court's decision, which was that racial segregation on buses was illegal. And this was, 19, uh, this was November 13th of 1956. And the boycott ended just a month later. So what happens is that every other U.S. city with segregation ordinances is looking at Birmingham like, oh, well, that's it. You know, there no challenge to their laws are going to stand. But of course, they're not just going to willingly bring desegregation. That would just be the easy, right thing to do. Instead, in Atlanta, it would take a group of six ministers and this movement, the Love, Law, and Liberation Movement, to bring integration to the city. Georgia's code stated that, quote, all conductors of streetcars and buses shall assign all passengers to seats on the cars under their charge so as to separate the white and colored races as much as practicable. And all bus drivers and all conductors of buses shall have and are hereby invested with police powers to carry out such provisions, end quote. In the same month that the Montgomery bus boycott ended, the Atlanta NAACP held a meeting at Big Bethel. Part of the ceremonies were re-electing officers, and familiar names like John Wesley Dobbs and Dr. Martin Luther King Sr. were named to the executive committee once again. Whitney Young stands in front of a crowd to explain to the group about the Triple L movement, Love, Law, and Liberation. 
that it would be affiliated with the NAACP and it would be led by Reverend William Holmes Borders. I talked about Borders briefly in episode 12, which was about Big Bethel and Wheat Street Baptist, but I'll share a little bit more about him here. He was born in Macon in 1905 and came to Atlanta to attend Morehouse College. He did his theological education in Illinois, where he met and married Spelman graduate Julia. In 1936, he was offered an instructor position at Morehouse, so he moved back to Atlanta, and then just one year later, he was offered to be the pastor of Wheat Street Baptist. And he did amazing things during his very, very long tenure there. I think he was pastor until like the 80s. But today, we're just going to focus on 1957. On January 8th of that year, Wheat Street Baptist was packed with over a thousand people. Among these men were Reverend William from Friendship Baptist, Reverend Johnson from Greater Mount Calvary, there was Daddy King, there was Dr. Pascal, he was 94 and the oldest minister in the room. And after six weeks of planning, this plan is shared with everybody. And the plan is that local ministers are going to get on city buses the following day at 10 a.m. Everyone else was asked to refrain. There were strict rules. They had like an eight-point strategy that I'm going to share later, but again, just very organized. And they told everybody, like, this is just us. We don't need you. To, we don't need your help right now. The following day, that group of ministers was whittled down to six. On January 9th, 1957, after a prayer session at Westside Baptist, the men met and walked to the southeast corner of Five Points. But all the passing buses were too crowded. So boarders led the group to Whitehall and Mitchell, where they got on a bus that was going on the Amsterdam route. So you may be wondering, why did they care about the bus being too full? And you have to know that this was a deliberate, cautious, conservative protest. One that's plans were shared with Mayor Hartsfield in advance. And the goal was to have the least amount of civil unrest possible. And so the ministers agreed that they would not sit next to any white women or get on a bus packed with white people. So when these crowded buses kept passing, the group moved to a quieter spot. So they get on this Atlanta Transit System bus and they sat, quote unquote, where they pleased. Gannis Daniel is the driver. He's white. And all the white people that were on the bus immediately got off, with the exception of a reporter and one lone white man identified solely as M. Egelka. When one of the black ministers sat down next to him, he told reporters, quote, it did not matter to him where Negroes rode so long as he got to where he wanted to go, end quote. And before you ask, yes, I tried to look him up, but there was nothing else about him. But I'm still on a mission because I just find this this man intriguing. There's also a story that um, a white man that had exited the bus tried to get back on and rip the camera from one of the reporters, but he wasn't successful. So there's a 15 minute delay and the bus is stopped. There's another bus that comes to pick up the white passengers that are on the curb. And then the driver of the bus that the ministers are on changes the sign um, from Amsterdam, then he makes it Whitehall and Glen, and then he changes it to special. But even with the special tag, he continues along the original route, um, heading back to the bus garage or the bus barn or whatever they called it. During this ride, the ministers read verses of scripture, and one reads Power of Nonviolence by Richard Gregg. Initially, when the bus did stop at the garage, they, he, the bus driver tried to force the men to exit from the back door, um, but there was a little bit of pushback, and finally he just said, okay, exit wherever you want. No arrests would be made that day, but the next day was a little different. Mayor William Hartsfield and Police Chief Jenkins said publicly that they must uphold state law. Atlanta did not have specific bus segregation ordinances, and so the statute that I had just read earlier applied. 
Georgia Attorney General Eugene Cook placed the burden of enforcement on local authorities. So it was a little bit of a pointing finger game. Robert Somerville, who was head of the transit company, stated that we have to uphold the laws, but if the laws are wrong, they should change. The driver's statement was simply that he was doing as it was instructed, which was that if the bus became racially integrated, he was to drive it back to the garage. Now, Georgia Governor Marvin Griffin felt a little differently. An ardent segregationist, just the year before, he'd made national news during the Sugar Bowl because the Pitt Panthers, who had a black player, were supposed to play Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, and Griffin sent public telegrams to the state schools saying they should not take place in the integrated event. So it will not surprise you to know that this governor was the same man that put the National Guard on standby after the six ministers rode this bus. On January 10th, Reverend Borders tells the crowd at church he will ride again today, but no details were given. He tells them that, quote, freedom is on the march here in Atlanta, and it cannot be stopped because the cause we fight for is honorable and just, end quote. But that second ride never happened. Instead, the six ministers were arrested for the previous day's ride. Now, if you look this up in the encyclopedia of this event, it says that Mayor Hartsfield and the police chief called Borders and the group to arrange an appropriate time and place for the arrest, which I think this information definitely came out after the incident because it was not in the newspapers when this was happening in real time. Um, And Borders talks about it much later in life. Wheat Street Baptist was chosen and a crowd of onlookers gathered outside to watch the ministers be arrested. And the men who were arrested were R.B. Shorts, who was presiding elder of the Williams Atlanta District of CME Church, B.J. Johnson, who was pastor of Greater Mount Calvary, Howard Bussey, pastor of Perry Holmes Baptist, A. Franklin Fisher, pastor of West Hunter Street Baptist, Roy Howard Williams from Smith Chapel Baptist, and Reverend H.I. Bearden from Big Bethel. The attorney representing the group is S.S. Robinson, so he had just worked on the golf course desegregation case um, and any other case that happened in the the previous years about civil rights. And assisting him was attorney A.T. Walden, Mrs. Romay Turner-Powell, Donald Lee Hollowell, and R.E. Thomas Jr. So all the ministers are released on a $1,000 bond, and they basically have to wait for formal indictment. Almost two weeks later, that comes. Formally charged for violating state segregation laws, there are 23 bills of misdemeanor charges against them, which carry penalties of 12 months in the public work camp or $1,000 fine and six months at camp. January 21st, there is a huge meeting at Wheat Street of 2,500 people. And this is the craziest thing I read, is a bomb threat was called in, but nobody tells the crowd. They just send in plainclothes officers to search the building. Everybody's unaware. I imagine that they thought this wasn't real, but it blows my mind that they would have a bomb threat called in and not evacuate the building. These triple L meetings continued every month, different churches. Like in March, they met at St. Paul AME. In April, it was at Warren Memorial Methodist on Ashby Street. And during this same time, Borders and A.T. Walden went to Washington to testify before the Senate subcommittee about desegregation. There were some great quotes that came out of that thing. Borders was definitely portrayed as the fiery one, saying, quote, Atlanta is from many angles a wonderful and marvelous city. I want 
Negroes want, Democratic and Christian people everywhere want, the Civil Rights Bill passed, end quote. And Attorney General Cook says that, quote, Negroes do not desire integration, end quote. And Walden steps in and he goes, quote, I think I'm a little better spokesman for Negroes than is our Attorney General, end quote. And so the white newspapers call Walden more temperate in his remarks. And Walden goes on to explain in front of the Senate that there are a million Black people in Georgia, there's only 165,000 registered to vote, while there is 2 million white people and 1.25 million of them are registered to vote. And he talks about the county unit system um, and how that's a problem and how leaders are a problem. But again, just working towards that civil rights amendment. In May, Reverend Borders attends the Prayer Pilgrimage for Freedom, which was a demonstration in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the third anniversary of Brown vs. Board. It would take two years before Atlanta's bus desegregation case went through the court system. Let's be honest, I don't think it was supposed to take that long. I'm sure there were certain people that wanted to take that long. But a final decision was finally handed down at the beginning of January in 1959. Based on Montgomery, Alabama's decision, Judge Frank Hooper rules that Georgia's law is unconstitutional. Now, I'm sure you guys have visions of Black Atlantans getting on buses immediately, but that didn't happen. Borders and other leaders confirmed with the mayor and agreed to a quote-unquote cooling-off period, basically allowing white people to be angry for a few weeks before having to share their bus with Black people. And the ministers were heavily criticized by other Black Atlantans for being accommodationists, for being way too forgiving to the white power structure. Just they didn't agree with this method, but they got what they wanted. And so finally, at, after almost two weeks after this court decision, on January 20th, 1959, Borders told a crowd at Wheat Street Baptist that the time to ride had come. And here is where they had that eight-point strategy. The first point was to pray for guidance and commit yourself to nonviolence in word and action. Number two was if you see someone being molested, do not arise and go to their defense. Pray for the oppressor. Number three was like the bus driver is in charge of the bus. You ask his aid. You report any serious incidents to him. Then you report to one of the leaders immediately. Number four, um, this was before they rode because it was like, you'll be notified when we wish to help you. But until then, be quiet and friendly, proud and not arrogant, happy but not noisy. Number five, be sure you are neat and clean at all times. Number six, do not be drawn into arguments about segregation, desegregation or integration. In case of an accident, talk as little as possible. Number seven, if cursed, do not curse back. If pushed, do not push back, but show love and goodwill at all times. And number eight, remember always to pray, especially for those who would persecute anyone. So again, these were very accommodationist, conservative points. Um, there was also very strict edict to never sit next to a white woman, especially for black men. So um, that was told to everybody, even after the buses integrated. As the Atlanta Transit Company feared white ridership, greatly declined once these buses desegregated. And in 1960, there was a survey done that stated that Black people in the city made up 60% of bus riding during rush hour, despite only being a third of the city's population. And that will probably bring us into a future episode about MARTA and a lot of discussion there. So there you have it, the love, law, and liberation movement, and how six ministers desegregated Atlanta's bus system five years before the Federal Civil Rights Act. 
I hope that this helps you understand the role of religious leaders in the Black community, especially in a year where Georgia got its first Black senator, Reverend Raphael Warnock, and I don't think it's a coincidence that he was a pastor. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review on your podcast app. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.